My name is Morgan Vincent, and in this week's episode, we have Rodney Maller to discuss the theme, contrary passages. And it's really a question, Rodney. You know, contrary passages, where where we're looking at what are potentially some contrary passages or some some difficult passages that that people can perhaps get a little bit you know misunderstood and, and not quite understand. So, Rodney, it's going to be a good discussion. It's going to be a pretty pretty technical discussion, I think, but. Welcome and thanks for for joining me again, Rodney. Yeah, thanks for having me, Morgan. And yeah, I think that um, you know when we think about these contrary passages, oftentimes they're taken out of context and and used in isolation and not looked at in terms of the broader message of the Bible. And so mm. uh, it's very easy to to read into it something that isn't actually there. Mm. Yeah, I, I like the way you use context and. You know, I think that that's something that's very important with the Bible. And I think, Rodney, initially to, to, to start with, something that comes to mind when it comes to reading and, and studying the Bible, um, there, there are some important things, you know, principally to understand, you know, because if I was just to open my Bible now and if our, our listeners were to just open their Bible now to just kind of blindly just open it up and kind of place their finger on a page and, and read it, they could very well read something that firstly is not at all what the Bible is saying. Secondly, is not at all what the author was intending. And thirdly, can actually then lead people to come to uh, a, a misunderstanding about who God is and his truth. And so, you know, there's, there's some biblical principles of, of I guess, to kind of set, set some uh, context for where we're going. You know, the Bible speaks of how you know, when we read and understand the Bible, it's, you know, we use this principle of, you know, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And, and you know, we're, we're looking at what's, what's the overwhelming evidence saying, you know, what, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, what does the Bible have to say on topic X or topic Y or topic Z? And so that's something that we've been looking at, you know, throughout the course of, of this quarter. And as today we look at some contrary passages about, you know, some, some common ones that people think, well, maybe this leads us to think and believe that we actually do have an immortal soul, that death is kind of this vague thing and maybe there's not really a thing called death. And so we're going to look at that, Rodney. And to begin with, um, Peter warns us in the Bible to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And... I'm assuming that there's been times where you've given that defense. Yeah, absolutely. How, how, on an experiential level, how did you find that, you know, in, in giving a, a defense, a response? Well, I can give you um, a quick example of, uh, I mean, I grew up as a, as a Catholic. And so I grew up believing in purgatory, um, believing that, uh, you know, when you die, you go straight to heaven. And, um, and so I, I had that upbringing and when I came to to study the Bible and and discover um, the true biblical understanding of of the state of the dead uh, it was actually a felt as though a burden had been lifted now I know that might sound a bit strange because previously I I wouldn't have even thought that I had a burden um, but I guess the idea of 
someone looking down on you and and seeing all the mistakes that you're making in your life, you know, of someone that you've looked up to or someone that you love, um, can have quite a uh, a bearing on your life. And to feel as though that when you die, that you just rest, that you know nothing, that uh, there's no separation of soul and body, um, was actually a comforting thought that, you know, once you pass, the next thing you know, you see Jesus coming. And so it was just a, a beautiful concept. Mm. No, thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Rodney. And uh, that's that no doubt plays into the topic that we're going to be speaking about today. And to begin with, you know, in, in sharing some comments on, on the lesson we, this week, we want to look at the, maybe one of the most common, uh, and I'm going to say the word parables because that's what it is. A parable that Jesus taught called the rich man and Lazarus. And, 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 you know, we know this to be found in Luke chapter 16 and, and I'm just going to read some of it by, by way of, of setting some context and, um, Luke 16 and verse 19, it says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs of which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it goes on. And, and initially we, 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 we find these two characters, this, this rich man and this man called Lazarus. And the story goes on, the parable would go on. And upon first reading of that, we could be led to think that it's describing the state of the dead in terms of death happens, but yet there's still this consciousness going on. There's still this, you know, activity going on for these two individuals, one in heaven, one in, in hell. And they're actually a lot closer than we think because they're able to have a conversation as, as the parable would go on to say, but this strikes some problems because in, in previous weeks of this quarter, we've, we've looked at, you know, the, the state of humanity and the state of a person in death. And when we look at the, the, the overwhelming, you know, evidence of the Bible, it's seeming to, you know, indicate that this isn't what Jesus is intending. So why would you say, Rod, that that this story is not a literal description of the afterlife. Well, I think one of the most key indicators of the fact that this isn't a description of, of the afterlife is the fact that um, it's done allegorically. You know, the, if, the, if they were this, um, this soul, but they, they have this body-like and they're able to thirst and they're able to feel human, human emotions and, and things like that, and um, points to the fact that this is nothing but a an allegory and, and a and a story to to point out a um, a situation that people were facing at that particular time. Yeah, I like that a situation that people were facing at that time. You know, I, I mentioned it earlier, Rod, because and, and you touched on it too. To so pulling that in. It would be a very strange thing to know that there were people in the state of death in heaven that were able to talk with people that are in hell. It would be a strange thing to then be able to 
you know, follow the endless sufferings of loved ones, family, friends, etc. But also too, as you mentioned, um, you know, this was a parable which made use of the current Jewish thinking of, of first century of, of, of that time. So it was not in any way intended to, intended to teach on the state of a person in death. No. And so Jesus here, he, he's getting at something and fundamentally, amongst other things, he's getting at this sharp contrast between a well-dressed rich man and a certain beggar named Lazarus, as if to indicate two things. One, the, the status and the recognition uh, in the present is not the criteria of a future reward, but secondly, that the eternal destiny of each person is decided in this life. And it can't be, you know, you can't kind of, you know, be in heaven and then somehow, you know, transfer to hell or you can't be in hell and then somehow transfer to, to heaven. So this, this is one where it's, again, when, when we look at it in context and, and, and when we can read something, read it two or three times and think, hmm, hang on, this would seem weird if it's talking about people that kind of live on after their death to kind of have this interaction between heaven and hell. And I don't know, even now it's just like, ah, uh, it seems kind of confusing. And you have to remember that the Bible is consistent from beginning to end. And if, if there's something that sticks out and says, this is not consistent, then, then it deserves a bit of a extra look. And if you look in the gospels, Jesus is very consistent with calling out the cultural context of the day where uh, if you had wealth, um, you were seen as automatically going to heaven and, you know, social status had, you know, brought with it um, honor and it was just assumed that you're on that track. And he called it out a few times, you know, we can look at, you know, it's harder for a rich man to go to heaven than it is for someone to, to, to go through a, the eye, a camel to go through the eye of a needle, you know. Um, he called out and said that, you know, the woman who gave two mites had given more than everyone else who'd put in big donations. And so we see this constant uh, theme where he's trying to break down that um, cultural context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, commonly held views. I like that. The, the next point we want to look at, Rod, is, <clears throat> is the time when Jesus was on the cross and he's there with two thieves, one on either side, and... Um, one of the thieves cries out and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus then responds. And I guess initially the first, the first way I began to understand the response of Jesus was, well, it's all about the comma. It's all about the placing of the comma. When, when Jesus says, you know, assuredly, I, you know, I, I promise you today you'll be with me in paradise. And I always thought, oh, it's about the comma. Like, you know, we just got to kind of say the sentence differently, place the comma in a different way. And I'm thinking, is that, is that kind of the best response I can give, that it's all about a comma? Or what is Jesus actually talking about? Because, again, remembering what Jesus has said to Mary, what Jesus has said to other disciples, he's given the promise of his return. You know, John 14 my father's house and many mansions. If it were not so, I would, would have told you. You know, I go and prepare a place for you. And he promises that I will come again. And so now 
it would seem a bit strange for Jesus to say to this thief on the cross, yeah, come with me today to paradise. Oh, but just know that I'm not going to paradise today. Because we know that didn't happen. Jesus right. didn't. That, that day, that Friday, Jesus didn't go to paradise. I mean, it's not that you can really say the tomb is a paradise. Hmm. That's where Jesus went that day. Like after he dies on the cross, he goes into a tomb. And so the, this assumption, it brings up a whole lot of just, yeah, strange, strange conclusions for people. But what, what are some of your comments, Rodney, about this, this story of where Jesus, you know, assures that thief, you know, uh, uh, let me read it here. Truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Well, you know, the, the thing is, you've got to take into context the fact that uh, many people who read this verse are reading it through their lens of, of their worldview and, and their perception of how they understand um, death and, and what happens in the afterlife. And so it's very easy to read into it to say, oh, okay, so straight away this thief, thief is going to heaven. But when you analyze, as you mentioned, um, the fact that Jesus went into the tomb and he, uh, when he rose again, he, he also didn't go straight to heaven. You know, He spent another 40 days here on earth before he, he ascended. And so um, we know that Jesus is not a liar. Um, so, you know, he wouldn't be promising something that he wasn't able to, to deliver. Mm. And I think as well, it really negates the second coming. Absolutely. Because if this thief on the cross, in, on the cross goes straight to, to heaven, if people upon dying go straight to heaven or, or, or hell, it, it's, the, you know, what does that mean of, of you know, the final judgment. What does that mean for the second coming? Like it just, a whole lot of other things just begin to unravel because of, you know, this, this view that someone, you know, goes to heaven or hell upon death. Well, the Bible says that, you know, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Yeah. Why do the dead in Christ need to rise first if they're already there? Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, no, for our listeners, know that the promise of Jesus coming again is the hope of all believers, you know, including this thief on the cross. You know, for him that day, Jesus was giving the assurance, giving him the the total confidence that when Jesus comes again, that thief will be raised. That thief will will be part of that dead in Christ that rise first. And and that's an incredible thing because there's this this time. Time is 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 this strange thing. It's it's a it's, it can be both a blessing and, and and something that we struggle with because you know there there are people that have died in Christ and the Bible would say things like you know blessed are those who have died in the Lord. It's like how can someone who's died be blessed? You know how can that be a good thing? The thing for those people is that they've lived their fifty, sixty, seventy years of of, of life on this earth and the next moment they will experience is Jesus, seeing Jesus come back. And so for them, they don't have a concept of waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. And even we don't have that concept of waiting 2,000 years because, you know, you're the age you are, I'm the age I am, it's, and it's not anywhere near 2,000 years. And so for that thief on the cross, 
he he has that confidence. So the timing thing comes into view is to say, well, what about those that are raised at the first resurrection and those that are raised at the second resurrection? You know, the Bible speaks of those two two events. And when you read of them in, in say, Daniel 12 and other instances, we can think that, oh, it's seemingly referring to the same thing, but it's not. We read it, but yet within that, within those, those two events, those two verses is the space of a thousand years. And so time is this thing where it's, you know, we've got to understand that for this thief on the cross, for us, for those who are raised at the first resurrection or those that are raised at the second resurrection, time is this thing where to God, it's, it's, it's almost kind of a bit of a non-issue because it's like, well, Hey, look, I, I've said this, don't, don't, don't freak out. Don't think that, you know, I'm meaning something that I'm not. There's a consistency. And you said that there's a consistency to, to scripture as well. So let me ask you, um, how, how well did you sleep last night, Morgan? Oh, I slept, I slept pretty well. Um, it wasn't the longest of sleeps, but mm-hmm. I slept well. And, and you find when you, when you wake up in the morning from a, from a sleep overnight, you know that you've, you've been asleep. I mean, time is shortened, but you know that you've, you've had a, had a sleep and, you know, Jesus describes death as a sleep, but someone put a interesting, put it interestingly, I, I don't know, have you ever been on the operating table? Um, yeah, I have. Yep. Nothing major. And you've, you've been under anesthetic, anesthesia. Yeah. The moment you go to sleep and then the moment you wake up, it's like instantaneous. You don't, you, you, you don't even know that the operation's been done. You feel like it's, you know, you've literally just closed your eyes and the next thing you know, you open it and it feels like zero time has passed. When you wake up in the morning, you know that time has passed. You've, you've been asleep. And it's been described to me that it's going to be that kind of a feeling when, you know, you close your eyes in death and the next thing you know, you wake up and Jesus is coming and it's going to feel like that. No time has passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the dead aren't aware, you know, the, 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 the Bible would say, you know, the dead know no nothing. nothing. That's right. Yeah. Let's go now to Paul. He, he also says something as well. You know, this, this phrase of, you know, to depart and be with, with Christ and, you know, Paul, he was driven with a passion to, to live for Christ uh, and to live in Christ now. And, and this is a real, you know, when you think of Paul, you just think, you know, Paul was someone who was just sold out for the gospel and sold out for Jesus. And there's an interesting phrase because, you know, he, he would say things like he desires to depart and be with Christ. And and you could read that and you could think, man, is does Paul hate his life? Like, does Paul even enjoy living? Like, you could just come to some, you know, you, you could think you're thinking the truth, but you could come to some really strange conclusions. And so for Paul, not even death could break the assurance of his belonging to Jesus. Uh, you know, he would say in Romans 8, you know, neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so what, what essentially do you, do you see, Rodney, that Paul is saying when he says he's desiring to depart 
and to be with Christ? Well, I think that Paul's tasted the kingdom of God and he he recognizes that there are two kingdoms and he desires to be in that kingdom, that, that, that heavenly kingdom. And, you know, uh, statistically, if you do, if you look, do a Google insert and, and see what the number one fear is, the number one fear in the world is dying. And why is that? Because people are uncertain of what happens after you die. There's a lot of question marks. But Paul never showed that fear. And this is why this stands out so much is because Paul was very assured of what was going to happen. And he knew that um, death was going to be a short sleep and that soon he would be with Christ. And so when you have that blessed assurance, the fear of death loses its power. And what I'm about to say, Rodney, you know, it may be misunderstood. So I'm going to try as best I can to explain it. There are moments in my life where I would much rather be in heaven, where I'd much rather be in eternity future in a world that's restored and a world made new. Now I can think those thoughts. I can, you know, articulate that, but in no way is that me desiring to hate my life, desiring to just wish I was never born, you know, things like that. But it's rather me realizing, as you said, as Paul, you know, did as well. And, and, and you have, and I have, you know, we've tasted God's kingdom. We, we, we've seen how good it is in part. And, and we, 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 we are on that, 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 that eternal journey of knowing who God is. And yet it's like, we, we just, we just don't want death anymore. We just don't want sorrow. We don't want the burden of sin. We don't want the burden of whatever it is. And so, you know, Paul was someone and, and, and I believe we, and, and, and this is why I say it is that there are moments in my life where I just, I almost have this, this overwhelming desire and longing to just not be in this world anymore because it's like, man. And, and that's not to say that there aren't traces and evidences of God's love and his creation and his beauty in the world. Of course, there is like wherever there are thorns, there are roses. Um, and so, you know, for us and for me, it's like, man, I say this because I, I, I'm with Paul. I really do want to depart and be with Christ. But I'm not saying that I want to depart and just all of a sudden start, you know, roaming around in, in, in the palaces of heaven, but no, no, no. I want to depart because what, what I'm longing for is to see Jesus. And as it would say in Isaiah, you know, these people would say, lo, this is our God. We've waited for him and, and he has come to save us. And so Paul here is not in any way desiring to imply that his soul would depart to live consciously with Christ. But rather his longing was, you know, to, to, to be with God, to, to see him in, in, in total and in fullness and just for who, for who he is. And so, yeah, it, it's, yeah, I think it's kind of, again, I think it's kind of self-explanatory because who doesn't want that? Absolutely. 
and and so yeah let let's keep that in our minds as well as we as we kind of keep um yeah thinking through this week and 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 this point as well the the final one we want to look at rod is is from revelation um revelation is one of my favorite books what about yours rod oh absolutely yeah one of your favorites yeah, yeah. i really like it and i want to begin rod by saying that john so the same disciple who was with Jesus, John here, who, who is given this revelation, not just from Jesus, but also of Jesus, is, is given a view. No, no, let me say it this way. John was not given a view of heaven as it actually is. In other words, John was given a view of heaven in types and in symbols and almost in a pictorial panoramic presentation and we're going to see why for instance there's no white or red or black or pale horses that are riding around with a warlike warrior on them um, jesus doesn't appear as a, an actual lamb that's kind of got blood dripping out right the four beasts, you know, they're, they're not re represented with actual, you know, winged animal characteristics. So, so we, we get this idea, you know, but rather they're, they're symbols, they're, they're types, they're, they're a pictorial representation of the reality as if to say that the Jesus being described as the lamb, you know, slain, it's like, no, 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 that's a picture of Calvary. That's the picture of the cross and the centrality of that. And so then when we come to, to the imagery and the symbol and the type of these souls under the altar, it's like, okay, how could the souls of the dead martyrs cry out under the altar? So what's, what's kind of going on here is really the question we want to, to look at. So you want to give it a crack? Yeah, well, I think, you know, if, if you cast your mind back to Genesis and... If you remember when um, Cain killed Abel, and you know uh, we see there that um, Jesus references or God references the fact that you know I can hear Abel's calling out yep, to me from the, crying, you know yep. crying out, and so was he literally? No, but um, it was symbolic of 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 the fact that injustice had been done, and. Um, and so we see that playing out again here in Revelation, amplified um, because now we see um, millennia of people that have been treated injustly and killed and martyred. And, and so the blood of the saints calls out. And so again, yeah, we, we're seeing this symbolic language. And this too, Rod, it's, you know, we see this throughout time. You know, I think of Daniel, um, and, and there's a lot of pa parallels and similarities and connections between um, Daniel's life and John's life and in those two books, Daniel and Revelation. Daniel, you know, is perplexed, he's um, concerned, and, and we could think of other synonyms as well. Daniel's people have been, you know, led into captivity you know, the, 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 the temple has been destroyed. Like the, the articles of the temple have been taken, you know, captive and used for, 
you know, secular and worldly purposes. And the cry of God's people in Daniel 8 is how long? Like God's people, people are seen crying out there, you know, how long? How long, O Lord, until the sanctuary shall be cleansed? How, how long? Like how long until injustice is made right? How long until all of the wrongs are made right? And the answer is, well, it's going to take a while. But I'm with you and I'm faithful to my covenant. And here in Revelation, we see the image of people, the image of, of these saints, of these, these martyrs, of people throughout time who have you know, loved not their lives even unto death, as it would say in Revelation 12. And here we see these, these, these souls under the altar. And it's such a... It's such a beautiful image, you know, to think that these people are, are there gathered around this, this altar of burnt offering, this altar as if to say, look, you know, how, how long? And they're crying out for justice. They're crying out for the wrongs to be made right. And for many of them, all of them, they didn't, they didn't get to see the, the, the fulfillment of what their faith was in. They didn't get to see Jesus come back face to face. But as they died in Christ, the same words that were spoken to Daniel were spoken to them. I'm with you. Hold on. And I'm faithful to my covenant. And so for these people, these souls under the altar, you know, it's this beautiful image of people who have have had such a heart longing and desire to, to want to be with God, to see, as you said, injustice made right. And I think we can, we can, we can have that similar desire as well. You know, we can be people who, who are crying out for, for, for God to, to make things right. And we can join with them, but, but it's important to remember also that it's not a literal thing. And so again, I don't want to kind of just get lost in the mechanics of, of just proof texting to say, well, you know, that's wrong. This is right. But rather enter into the story of what is here in Revelation. And at the end of the day, what we want to be able to grab onto is that hope. You know, that, that promise that is for each and every single one of us, that Jesus is re returning and that his reward will be with him that we just need to stay true. Yeah. And hold it's on. true. Rod, that's a great place to to finish our discussion to hold on, stay true to that promise. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And so for for our listeners, let's hold on to hope. Let's hold on to this and know that that the best is still yet to come. And that with longing desire we can not just come to a knowledge and understanding of the truth but as we interact with other people, we can be like Jesus and always speak the truth, but in love. And so until next time, thanks again, Rod. Amen. Yeah,